Father, in light of the revelation of your glory that we perceive even in your holy word as your spirit gives us the ability, I pray that our response would be one of reverence and fear and awe and also just the relief that comes from knowing our sins were atoned for. Truly to be Isaiah in the presence of the Holy One in that revelation of seraphim and the train of your robe filling the temple, this realm in which you abide where nothing unholy will be suffered, Lord. This is such an amazing picture of your glory that truly your servant was well aware that he did not deserve to be there unless and until an atoning work took place in his heart. And when you took that coal and symbolically touched his lips and rendered him clean, now Isaiah could enjoy the presence of God without the fear of utter and complete destruction. Lord, we confess that we can enjoy your presence free from the fear of complete and total destruction and judgment and hell because Jesus Christ has died for us. Because his death on Calvary and his precious blood secured for us assurance and entrance into the holy places, we describe or we ascribe to you the glory that you deserve on account of these great things. And now as we open up your scriptures, I pray that you would give us grace to see into the heavenly realm as it were, to see that you are sovereign and you have ordered all things according to your holy will. To understand that that which you have created and ordained and sustained by the word of your power, Lord, is, to, is in your hands and is not to be overturned or thwarted or to be uh, up for review or to be altered in any way by the will of man. Lord, we pray that as you strengthen and encourage our souls through the proclamation of your word, that you would also equip your church, equip us to proclaim its truth to the lost. I pray that you would give us a heart much like your servant Abraham in praying and interceding that you would save those who yet remain in a Sodom and a Gomorrah situation. Lord, that you would not overlook, Lord, those that you have set your love upon even in our day, but that you would send your church out to proclaim healing, hope, salvation in Christ alone. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity that you have given us. May we not take it lightly but commit to our soul's encouragement the words from your scripture today as we hear them. Do all of this to advance your name and glory, and may you accomplish it by your Spirit's use of of this means this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, I hope it's with a heart of encouragement and gratefulness to the Lord for the privilege of joining together in worship and consideration of His Word that you turn with me to Genesis 18 today as we consider an installment in our Genesis series under this title, Sodom on Trial. There is a trial, there is a day of reckoning appointed for the cities of the plains, the cities of the valley, the place, the region where Lot took residence when he parted ways, I believe, in Genesis 14 with Abraham. This was known to be a wicked region, wicked cities, in rebellion against the Lord of glory, and their day of judgment had come. In Genesis 18, we find the circumstances of the trial of these cities as God interacts with His servant Abraham in His goal to save His people, in His plan and purpose to save His people, as well as to show His glory through judgment by, uh, upon these cities. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to behold the salvation of the Lord secured through His significant Son. We behold in Genesis 18 and 19 the salvation of the Lord secured through His significant Son. Now, young people, you remember the theme of significant Son, right? Through Genesis. 
If we could pick a phrase to give us the main idea or a main idea of the book of Genesis, in my mind it is those two words, significant son. We go back all the way to Genesis 3.15 and there's a significant son promise given to Adam and Eve in the form of judgment and prophecy over the serpent. One of the most famous texts is sometimes called the first gospel in the Greek proto-Ewangelion in Genesis 3.15 and it's this promise that the woman shall bear a son or the seed of the woman shall come and he shall crush the serpent's head though his uh, heel would be bruised, to paraphrase. And so this is the promise of a significant son and so now the line by which the Messiah would come who would deal a mortal head wound to the enemy is preserved and championed and recorded all through the pages of Genesis. Abraham is, of course, in the line of significant sons. And in his role in this incident, in these events, in the intercession for Lot and for any righteous who might be in Sodom, and for Abraham's intervention along these lines, we see that he is serving as a significant son in a role that even models the Messiah. Thus, even when Sodom and Gomorrah themselves these uh, harbingers of great wickedness, these classic cities that illustrate the depravity of man to the nth degree, if you will, there yet remains hope because there yet remains a significant son. Do you feel like in our day, in our city, as it were, in our society, that we are careening ever more so towards a Sodom and Gomorrah? Where is there hope when the depravity around us increases? The hope is found just as it was in these days, in our day, in the significant Son. So let us stand if, as you're able for the reading of God's holy word and consider these truths today. This is Genesis 18, verses 16 through 33. Witness here Sodom on trial in God's holy word, beginning in Genesis 18:16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what, am I, what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he had promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Verse 22, So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death and the wicked with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Verse 26, And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom, Fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. 
Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, for I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Turn back with me to Genesis 14. So just to remind you, Genesis 18, the first portion of the chapter, records a covenant meal. You remember? Before the Lord and these two angelic beings proceed to Sodom, the angelic beings proceed, and then the Lord himself continues to commune with Abraham, the Lord appeared to Abraham at the door of his tent in verse 1, 18.1. Where was he? Where was Abraham, kids? you remember where the angels and the Lord himself found Abraham? Where was he camped out? By the oaks of, oaks of Mamre. That's correct. A significant place indeed. It represented the Lord's covenant promises an altar place, and thus Abraham in faith resided at the place of God's promises. Lot, on the other hand, had long since left his uncle for greener pastures. Believing the old adage, grass is greener on the other side, in spite of the wickedness of the city, he had moved and set up his tent closer and closer till we find him in chapter 19 within the city gates itself of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we have this kind of juxtaposition, Lot residing in this wicked place, Abraham in the place of covenant promise. And then the Lord comes and visits Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. And what happens? They share a covenant meal. Genesis 14, though, uh, records another covenant meal. Do you remember this one? Verse 17, After his return from the defeat of Keterlamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. A very important figure, verse 18, is introduced. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out what? Bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, meaning Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Abram at the time, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham, Abram, gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. There are interesting parallels between Genesis 14 and Genesis 18. This is not the first time in our chapter today that Abraham has experienced an extraordinary encounter with mysterious individuals. In this case, it's God in flesh, appearing in flesh in a theophany with two angelic beings. Before, it's Melchizedek, who stood uh, for king of peace, a priest before God Most High, and was according to the order of priestly line that Jesus himself would assume in the book of Hebrews. So this is an extraordinary encounter, again, with mysterious individuals who represent the power and presence of God himself. So Abraham is visited by the Lord and these two angelic beings, and just like the king of Salem, Melchizedek, these individuals represent the power and presence of God himself. In Genesis 14, 
A feast was shared in the presence of Melchizedek, the priest of God Most High, and Abram received a blessing of the fellowship and prophecy from this important individual. An individual so important, so important that Abram, in spite of his uh, status in the covenant, in fact pays tithe to him, the greater as it were. This meal was on the heels of defeat. Remember, Abraham, Abram has just declared victory over the Keter-Lamer coalition, the kings of the north that have uh, kidnapped Lot and a bunch of people from the Sodom and Gomorrah region. Abraham is victorious in battle, and now he sits down at a meal. And included in this event is a rejection of the fellowship gifts of the king of Sodom. In other words, Abram refuses the fellowship and the terms of relationship of the king of Sodom and embraces a fellowship meal with the individual that represents the power and presence of God. And now this same parallel is happening in Genesis 18. Abraham has just, Abraham has just shared a meal with the Lord and two angelic beings, and these individuals are going on to proclaim judgment, indeed, over Sodom and Gomorrah itself. Now, if we go to the rest of Scripture, some of the clarity of these events and what they picture comes to the fore. <clears throat> For instance, James 4.4 4 proclaims this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. A very clear position, posture is taken by Abraham. I will be friends with Melchizedek. I will be friends with God and these two angelic beings. But I am not going to make friendship and fellowship with the world. I'm going to reject the gift and promise and prosperity of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now Lot was not so clear in his convictions. Not so clear in his morals, was he? And he learned a hard lesson, and we'll see in ensuing weeks how that worked out for him. Nevertheless, these incidents in Genesis 14 and 18 really illustrate James 4.4 so well. There's a condemnation on the adulterous people who do not value friendship with the Lord. Do you not know that friendship with the world is to make yourself an enemy of the Lord and vice versa? The eternal truth of these words could not be better illustrated than with the relationship of Abraham to the Lord as his friend. And James also tells us that Abraham was a friend of God in 2.23. In contrast to the allure of Sodom and Gomorrah, here again in Genesis 18, we find Abraham sharing in a covenant meal with the Lord himself, and this time with two, uh, the Lord himself and two angelic beings. However, Abraham's tent was not their only destination. This was one visitation with two stops, if you will. One was to bless and to assure the covenant to Abraham. The other was to put Sodom and Gomorrah on trial. That's the theme of our text today. However, Abraham's tent, was, Abraham's tent was not their only destination. They would go on to judge the cities of the valley where Abraham's nephew Lot has pitched his tents. And here's an application point we introduced last time we were in this text, but I want to stress it again today. When the Lord comes, where will you meet Him? Where will the Lord find you when He comes? Will you be at uh, the sweet table of fellowship? communing with the Lord, maintaining a relationship with Him, enjoying the sweet presence of His communion, friendship with God Almighty? Or will the Lord's coming find you under a blazing fire of His judgment for unrepentant sin? When the Lord comes, you are either found to be in covenant with Him like Abraham, 
or found worthy of his judgment like the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah? Where will we be as a nation when the Lord comes on his day of reckoning? If you are assured your own salvation, this is the gospel message we need to proclaim, is it not? The Lord sets a table for his beloved in the presence of their enemies, but the alternative is devastating. And so these are your choices, illustrated by a number of biblical examples, either feasting with Melchizedek, the king of peace, or suffering a defeat with the Keterlamer coalition. So that would be Genesis 14. You see the kind of the either or. Or welcoming the Lord at your tent, Genesis 18, or burning to death in fire and brimstone in Sodom and Gomorrah. You see it illustrates these two destinies. Or partaking in the Passover lamb, or, or taking, partaking in the Passover meal under the lamb's blood, or losing your eldest and drowning in the Red Sea as enemies of God, the Egyptians and Pharaoh and his allies endured. And then finally, table shed, a fellowship at the marriage supper of the Lamb or excommunication unto final judgment. So you see these pictures throughout Scripture. There's this glorious friendship fellowship meal or destruction of God's enemies. And so this is what's pictured again in Genesis 18 of the trial of Sodom. The only safe place to be is to be a friend of God. What does it mean to be a friend of God? That's what we will learn in part in context today. The reality of ultimate reckoning and the hope of salvation is powerfully illustrated in our text today. So let's consider this text under four headings today. This is the trial of Sodom featured in, by uh, four different voices, if you will. Number one, God is speaking to his chosen one. God is speaking to Abraham. That would be one voice. Secondly, Abraham speaking to his children, verses 19 and 20. There's the voice of the covenant father speaking to his lineage. Number three, there's a voice of an outcry against Sodom, verses 20 and 22. And the remainder, greater portion of our text, there is a voice of intercession for the righteous. God speaking to his chosen one, Abraham speaking to his children, an outcry against Sodom, and intercession for the righteous. These are the voices if you will, in our text today. So let us consider what we can learn of the trial of Sodom, considering the Lord speaking to his chosen one, namely Abraham, verses 16 through 19. Then the men set out from there. Where did they set out from? Well, having finished this covenant meal with Abraham, the men move on. Remember, this is the Lord himself and two angelic beings. And they look down toward Sodom and note, Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him. God is speaking to his chosen one. Now here, I hope you catch that this is a picture, a snapshot of divine friendship that is absolutely profound and staggering. You have, in this instance, Abraham literally walking with God. Abraham literally walking with God. Uh, kids, I have a question for you. Is there anyone in the book of Genesis of whom it was said they walked with God? Can you think of anyone else who walked with God in the book of Genesis? Shout it out if you can. Anybody? Don't have as many of our uh, kids here today. Let me turn you back to Genesis 5, verse 24. 
And in brief, there is a record of at least two individuals prior to Abraham that were said to have walked with God. Do you remember Enoch? Verse 23, Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That is just a brief mention of the significance of the relationship of this friend of God. Enoch was in such close relationship with the Lord that his life was said to share the communion with the Lord of glory such that he never even tasted death. Wow, that is significant. In Genesis uh, chapter 14, excuse me, uh, Genesis chapter 6, we see this language used of Noah as well. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And we, of course, know from Noah's life and his story, the great privilege of walking with God, what it meant for him. What it meant for him was he was one of eight that would be saved from the judgment of God. And he was one who was given privilege to be his agent, his deliverer, to spare the world and the future of man and creatures from utter destruction. This is what it meant for these men to walk with God. And now we see another, a third, Abraham walking with the Lord, and literally so. These men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them. Abraham, in, his, in this journey, is picturing, he's illustrating walking with the Lord, friendship with God. The kind of friendship that James 4.4 illustrates by contrast with the uh, enemies, if you're a friend with God, that is, you're an enemy of the world, or if you're a friend of the world, you cannot be or you are nothing but God's enemy. And then James 2, 23, which describes Abraham as a friend of God. What does it mean to be in close relationship with the Lord? Well, it's to have his word revealed to you. It's to understand the seriousness and significance of his purposes and plans in judgment and salvation. And it's to be gloriously included as far as Abraham is concerned in this reality, both by an understanding and even in this case, by prayers of intercession. So Abraham walked with God. The trial of Sodom features God speaking to his chosen one, Abraham, and letting him in on his purposes in history. Now, this is impossible without condescension and communion. Two words that we begin with C and are extremely important. Condescension. That means that which is utterly unknown, so high and holy, takes on a form that is knowable, to accommodate themselves to the lesser. So this is a picture of the incarnation, when God himself takes on something like a form of human flesh and walks literally with Abraham. We've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. This is to prefigure. It anticipates another condescension event in history in the future. Jesus the forever second person gloriously manifest in heaven in the presence of God, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus takes on flesh. He condescends. He makes himself low. He enters through the womb of the Virgin Mary into history and takes on the burden, not just of relationship with us, but the atonement that was necessary to establish it. And we see a picture of this anticipated in Abram's, Abraham's experience the condescension and communion of the Lord. This context is an extension of what the table fellowship signifies. In other words, at the Lord's table, and we had uh, recently, we participated in the Lord's Supper. We celebrated the Lord's Supper here. 
But what does that fellowship, that table fellowship signify? Well, close communion, relationship, and friendship. Actually participating in an understanding and as God would give you His uh, marching orders, proclaiming His gospel and His purposes in the world. Condescension and communion. Now, at this time, Abraham's experience was accompanied by revelation. If you perceive the voice of the Lord through His word, you know something of the sweet fellowship that Abraham experienced. Note verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Unbelievers, people who do not realize the power and the authority, the truth, the value of God's scripture, yet remain blinded to its power. They yet remain undiscerning of its glorious truth. An unbeliever does not have ears to hear and eyes to see the glorious revelation of God in scripture. But when you have been born again, when your heart is changed, and when you begin to read scriptures and cling to them as if your life depends on it, something has happened. The Lord has shared His revelation with you. In the same way that God said to Abraham, shall I hide from him what I'm about to do? And of course, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. After all, he is my significant son. I am in covenant with him. I have established a relationship with him. Therefore, I will not hide myself. Now, when we turn to the scriptures and we find our soul's reassurance in their pages, when we open up the scriptures and see, oh, I see that is Christ pictured in this role that Abraham was taking on. Something is happening. You are walking with God. You are receiving the message of God's word in your heart and soul and sharing in the assurance of the experience of friendship with the Almighty. So do not take lightly your understanding and the fact of the word of God and the fact that you can understand and know the Lord through the pages of His Spirit revealed scripture. This is truly what condescension and communion are all about, not only for Abraham, but also for us as we read God's holy word. We find in context here, too, that God is speaking to his chosen one because he is, that is, Abraham is, a significant son in the line of the Messiah. God has chosen his significant son. He says in verse 17 again, the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? And then verse 19, For I have chosen him. There is something gloriously reassuring in this promise that we read here. Because the scriptures say the same language applies to every true believer. That God has called, appointed, chosen, elected you. And if God has called you by virtue of His purposes through His significant sons, then you have assured a friendship, fellowship, and the glorious reality of salvation. God has chosen, elected, He has preordained, predestined, He has called out His significant Son for His purposes. What was special about Abraham? Well, nothing in and of himself. Abraham himself says in verse 27, I who am but dust and ashes. There's nothing about dust and ashes that renders you valuable to be chosen. No, the choosing is something that God does miraculously, that God applies that God brings value in this relationship, that God defines the purpose and the value of Abraham and the role that he would serve. And even here we see Abraham serving as a significant son, prefiguring the multi-office of Jesus. Kids, do you remember the three special jobs that Jesus does? Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. That is correct. 
Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Verse 17. The Lord does not, never hides what he's about to do from his prophets. Amos 3 tells us. That is to say, inasmuch as Abraham was receiving the word of God and his intentions for the judgment and trial of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham was serving in a prophetic role. The Lord was speaking to him. He would not hide, to, hide from Abraham what he was about to do. The Lord does nothing without revealing it first to his prophets, Amos 3, 7 tells us. And so Abraham received the word of God, serving in something of a prophetic role. But Abraham was also something of a king. Verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. The political prominence of Abraham and his calling as a leader of people, as an ethnos or a people group that would be particular to God's purposes, set him apart as a significant son. He was the leader of a nation that would hold out hope for other nations. He and the line of significant sons had something of a kingly royal role and office to fill. And then finally, in our text today, he also serves as something of a priest. He says in verse 27, later in the text, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. This is what a priest does. He also says in verse 22, or it says of him, that Abraham still stood before the Lord. In verse 23, that he drew near and said, Who is someone who stands in the presence of the Lord, before the Lord? Who is someone who draws near to the Lord and undertakes to speak to him, making intercession on behalf of those he represents, if not a priest? Thus we see a picture of Jesus Christ typologically laid out. We see the threefold office of Jesus, prophet, priest, and king, modeled in this instance as God is speaking to his chosen one. And he is condescending and communing, if you will, with his significant son. So the trial of Sodom features this. God accomplishes his purposes through his significant son. The aim of this message, to behold the salvation of the Lord secured through his significant son. We see this element in our text today. Major point number two, second voice. Abraham speaking to his children. Verse 19 is significant. For I have chosen him, the Lord speaking of Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So here is an inter interjection about the covenant with Abraham and its conditions, if you will. There is a means whereby God will secure salvation, significant son status, hope for the lineage of Abraham. And this will be when Abraham is obedient to the calling to share with the next generation, presumably, what he is experiencing right now. The Lord visits Abraham, not so he can just have a unique personal experience, but because Abraham is an agent called to proclaim the revelation of the God who is and has made himself known to his children. You know, in the book of Exodus, when we see God's people leaving, God demonstrates his power in a tenfold plague on Egypt, delivering them through the Red Sea, miraculously destroying the greatest empire known at that time, destroying the chariots by bogging down their wheels and flooding them with the collapsing seas that have been separated by his sovereign miraculous power in the first place. And he does all of this. And then you might ask, well, that is amazing if you were there to see it. But how would the next generation know? 
Well, the answer is the same as the answer here. The next generation will know the powerful works of the Lord and deliverance from the bondage of Egypt when the parents are faithful, according to God's word, to share the truths of the Messiah with the next generation. This is the means whereby God had ordained that the faith and encouragement and the knowledge and the understanding of the next generation would stand when they face their own challenges. It raises a question. Is the testimony of the covenantally minded parent as powerful as the experience of the first generation? It absolutely is. Yes and amen. God's means of spirit-inspired, spirit-delivered truth is always sufficient. We live in a day where a high value is placed on experience. Unless I experienced it, maybe it didn't happen. I have cause for doubt. Unless I personally experienced it, I won't believe. It wasn't that Thomas's attitude. Unless I place my fingers in the wounds of Jesus' side and hands, uh, no, I reserve the right to be skeptical. What did Jesus say? Well, in his grace and mercy, he allowed Thomas to touch the physical evidence of his death and resurrection. But then he said, more blessed are those who hear and believe. Because Jesus knew there would be generations, even us today, who'd receive the word of God by testimony, by the lineage of God's spirit-inspired means, which is to preach the gospel. Now, Abraham is to speak to his children. And then, and so the question is, you know, how can future generations not degrade into friendship with the world such that God will preserve the seed of the Messiah and the whole world won't slip into the depravity of Sodom and Gomorrah. What is the long-term anti-Sodom and Gomorrah strategy? It is this, verse 19. Command your children and your household after you to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, let's shift to application. Have you ever thought to yourself, boy, the suffocating, overwhelming, depraved, and sinful influences of the culture are only increasing? You just need do nothing more than just turn, you know, plug into the internet for a little while or watch regular whatever program television to see that sinfulness is celebrated everywhere we look. So what is a good strategy to protect our children from the Sodom and Gomorrah influences that are increasing in our land? Verse 19. God has chosen you, parent in this room. God has chosen you, mother, father, to command your children in your household to keep the way of the Lord and to do righteousness and to do justice. Today, when we feel helpless and hopeless, and it seems like this world is being suffocated and overrun by wicked forces, you might ask yourself, what is the means whereby we can resist and push back against the slide to Sodom and Gomorrah? the slippery slope to the depravity of the cities of the valley. Well, it's pretty easy if you have children to know one, what is one substantial way to fight. It's to keep the way of the Lord, to command your children, to uh, teach them when they rise up and when they lie down and when they go by their way. And in this way, you'll cre create quite the contrast. You will emphasize the righteousness and justice of the Lord. You will train them to, you will teach them to obey the law of God. And this will be a stark contrast to the values of our day, which are begging for the judgment of God to fall upon them if they don't repent. This is how we save the city. How do we save the city? If just 10 people in Sodom and Gomorrah, would teach their children if just one family of ten would have followed what Abraham was called, commanded, and obedient to do in verse 19, the whole city would have been spared. Is there not hope in this? There is. The third voice, 
an outcry against Sodom. So the trial of Sodom features a few voices. God is speaking to his chosen one. Abraham is to speak to his children. And thirdly, there's an outcry, a voice, if you will, against Sodom that arises. Verse 20, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. What is this outcry? Well, before we answer that question, let us notice some posture, some positional language in our text. This is significant. Note verse 16. From then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. So you notice that positional language? We're not positive. You know, Abraham walked with God in this instance, and it is, it is uh, possible that Abraham was literally walking in the heavenlies in this instance and was lifted up. This Bible speaks of this kind of language and thus looked down from that literal position on Sodom while he was walking with the Lord and these two angels. I don't know that for sure, but that's the idea that's in view. If not literally, certainly figuratively, this is the posture or the positional language that's employed. Verse 20 again, or verse 21. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the cry that has come to me. Turn to uh, chapter 11. We've covered this language a little bit. It is part and parcel to the day of the Lord or the coming of the Lord in judgment. And this language is used with reference to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Genesis 11:4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So Babel is this attempt to rise to God-like status. Are they successful? No. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Not only, so this language illustrates the futility of their intentions. They cannot rise to God-like status. And more than this, uh, to illustrate the futility of this, God, in fact, comes down, if you will. But this is a coming of the Lord. It is the day of the Lord. It is a day of reckoning. This is judgment language. Do you remember we ran across this language recently in Exodus chapter 14? We won't turn there. But there again, the Lord who is in a cloud of fire, the Lord himself in cloud and fire looked down upon the Egyptians, clogged the chariot wheels, commanded his servant Moses, and the waters collapsed upon the people. So here again in Genesis 18 is judgment language. This, what is the outcry against Sodom? Well, the outcry is a testimony against them, which brings the day of the Lord. And this is a trial. This is a judgment. This is a court appointment, if you will. The Lord says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is very great and their sin is grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So it's not as if God has limited understanding, but what is decreed here is a thoroughgoing investigation where the Lord appoints a day of judgment where Sodom and Gomorrah will be weighed in the balances and they will be found to be wanting or found to be a satisfactory uh, in God's favor. Their uh, moral standing is in favor, and so God will allow them to be preserved. This is the day of judgment decreed for these cities. And do not overlook this. This is not insignificant. 
There is a day of judgment decreed for the whole earth. There is a day of reckoning where the Lord will come down, as it were, where the Lord will look upon the face of this whole earth. Everyone, every authority, every individual, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every knee will bow on that day. Every tongue will confess because they must answer to the one who they cannot on the final day avoid at that great throne judgment of God Almighty. And this is a precursor of that event. This is an outcry against Sodom, which is a testimony against them that has reached the Lord's ears that he is answering with a day in court or a day of judgment, a Babel-like coming, a Exodus-like coming of the Lord to, call, to uh, force his enemies to answer for their ways. When he finds the citizens in Sodom and Gomorrah, will they welcome him by bringing them into their home to share a feast? Lot, to his credit, did this. Abraham, an even better example. Or when the Lord shows up on the doorstep of Sodom, will they try to sexually violate them and molest them? That's the distinction. Do you see what happened? That happens in Genesis 19. There's an outcry, a testimony against them. What charges were brought against the city upon this investigative trial? Well, the scriptures talk in Genesis 4.10 that if there has been any innocent that are slaughtered, the blood guiltiness of those who are killed unjustly will cry out from the ground. There's an outcry from those who are unjustly slaughtered and killed, and this could well have reached the Lord's ears and may have been the reason for his visitation. In the scriptures, we call this blood guilt or blood pollution, and we've referenced it with respect to our land many times. Why? Because we understand from the testimony of scripture that there is an outcry against this nation insofar as there is the unjust killing of children in the, uh, of unborn children in the womb via abortion. And so long as that issue remains on the table, codified in justice by statute under the color of American so-called law, there remains an outcry against the Sodom and Gomorrah uh, depravity that is evident in our land, and it ought to make us fearful because this kind of testimony against us will earn for us on, on some day of God's appointing and choosing a day of the Lord where he will come and try us according to his holy standards to see if we are his friend or if we are his enemy. Again, when the Lord comes, how will he be received? Will you, will you meet the Lord at the fellowship table, recognizing that the blood of the Lamb has secured you safe entry into his presence? Or will you receive the Lord in judgment as he comes to deliver to you what you deserve? This incident, <clears throat> Genesis 18, becomes what I call an event oracle. It's something that happens in history, a literal event in history, but also it's an oracle, namely, the, or meaning the word of God. It's an event word. It's an event oracle. It is a pattern of God's judgment that becomes a paradigm that we judge or that we are meant to apply as a principle to all of history. We don't have time to turn there, but in Jude 7, the scriptures say it as much. In 2 Peter 2, 6-9, through 9, they also reiterate this fact. This visitation establishes a paradigm of expectation of judgment upon all unrepentant people. If a people does not repent, there comes a trial of Sodom moment. There comes a day of the Lord moment where they must answer, where they must give a reckoning for how they lived. How will the Lord be received on that day? <clears throat> Sodom and Gomorrah is a foreshadowing of the final day, a coming of the Lord in history, bringing his reckoning. 
And this raises a question, how can we escape? How can we escape that day? It sounds devastating, does it not? And if you are found to be in unrepentant sin, not trusting your Messiah and your Savior, it is a devastating day. You can't imagine anything worse. So where is their escape? How can you be saved? Our final point today makes the case. It is according to the intercession for the righteous. The trial of Sodom features four voices, as we've mentioned, God speaking to his chosen one, Abraham speaking to his children, an outcry against Sodom, and finally, intercession for the righteous. In verses 22 through 23 through 33, Abraham lifts his voice in intercession. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. That's verse 27. He begins his appeal in verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then, of course, the negotiation begins, right? If there are 50, let's say there are 50 righteous, we spare the city, God agrees. Let's say there are 45, God agrees, and then 40, 30, 20, 10, and so forth. The negotiation continues. Suffice it to say that so long as there is a righteous minority, and it is perhaps illustrated a principle here, so long as there is a righteous minority that yet remains in the city, it doesn't have to be very large, God will often spare his judgment that is deserving of that place. This is real social security. The term social security has been co-opted by political policies that try to ensure that we have a safety net, financially speaking, when we get old. But who cares if you have a safety net when you get old if fire and brimstone are falling out of the sky? This is to say that real social security is found if God continues to allow you to exist as a country in his mercy and withholds the storehouses of fire and brimstone for the time being. And there is something encouraging to know that though you, many, do not share your principles and your convictions as a believer, there is something comforting in knowing that God will often spare in his mercy he will spare judgment because there is a minority that yet relies and rests upon the righteousness and judgments of God and that proclaims his gospel is the only way of truth and life and hope and salvation even in a world that's surrounded by all the wickedness and depravity. Will you join Abraham in standing for righteousness even when it's unpopular in culture? Will you repent if you are a lot and you're drawn away with friendship to the world? And, uh, and will you stand in that city as a light rather than Lot being absorbed and having to be rescued as by the skin of his teeth by those angels in the final day? It was a pitiful circumstance to be sure. However, there is encouragement in knowing that those who take a stand for godliness might just be responsible for sparing the whole city. Just 10 godly ones in a city is enough in this instance would have been enough to spare it judgment. How will our nation be spared? Well, one answer is in verse 19. Teach righteousness and justice to your children. Be one of the ten righteous, as it were, and then pray for the lost. Abraham interceded and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. What is he doing? Well, Abraham is a Hebrew, of course. He has a particular calling. and There's ethnic associations with it. But Abraham knows that God has given him the calling to be a light, not just to the Israelites, but to all nations. So in this instance, Abraham begins to intercede for a Gentile and a pagan city. 
And as such, he is serving in his role to be a light to the nations. We see it pictured in this instance. How will this nation be spared, as we said, to do like Abraham, to pray and to teach and to proclaim godliness, to not be afraid to be that vocal and righteous minority. Here Abraham sought to be a blessing to all nations, even the pagan Gentile cities, praying that God would have mercy upon them. What was the grounds of Abraham's appeal? Well, he says in verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Notice this phrase. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? We've referenced this recently with respect to Psalm 109. Remember, David doesn't pray that the Lord would save him for his sake. He doesn't pray that according to some pragmatic reason that the future of democracy could be preserved by the skin of his teeth. No, he prays that God's mercy would come in order to advance God's glory. He prays according to the character, the attributes, and the glory of God. I would encourage us to adopt this same principle. O Lord, spare us unto your glory. Abraham makes his appeal on the justice of the Lord. Lord, I know you to be just. You will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. So intervene for your namesake. Just like Moses prayed, O Lord, if our enemies destroy us, they'll say that you didn't have the power to rescue us. So for your namesake, for the sake of your glory, spare us the judgment we otherwise deserve and the Lord intervene. This is priestly intercession on the ground of God's character. Let us pray this way for our nation. O Lord, spare us the judgment we otherwise deserve, but not at the expense of your glory, but for your glory would you intervene. And as the Lord does so, let us champion his glory. Let us proclaim his attributes. Let us stand for his name. Let us make our appeal according to the character of the Lord. This is how one negotiates with God, if you will. This is how one makes his appeal. How can you be saved? Well, God did not sweep away Lot in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he saved him. Even though the city was destroyed, Abraham's prayers were answered, and even Lot, and as weak and frail as his faith was, was spared that fiery judgment. Praise the Lord. In the case of Noah, uh, a similar situation, right? The Lord did not sweep away the righteous with the wicked, but prepared an ark, as it were. And Noah was saved and his seven family members through this means of God's salvation. Meanwhile, the sweeping judgment drowned the depraved world all around him. So what is the ark, as it were, in our story here? Well, let me submit to you that it is priestly intercession. Priestly intercession saves. Verse 22, Abraham draws near. First tw verse 23, or, uh, 23, he draws near. 22, he stood before the Lord. This is an intercessory posture. This is the ark of salvation that was provided. Here the ark is priestly intercession of the significant son. This is how the righteous escape the judgments of God. We need a mediator, a priest, an advocate. More than this, we need a sacrifice. We need a Messiah. We need a significant son, the seed of the woman, the Satan head-crushing appointed one to intercede on our behalf. Let us close by referencing a prayer along these lines that we opened this morning service with in John 17. Turn there again with me as you're able. The trial of Sodom features four voices, God speaking to his chosen one, his significant son. 
He declares the means whereby he can push back against a culture of wickedness. Abraham speaking to his children. There is an outcry against Sodom which declares that it is ripe for judgment upon God's investigation, finding that indeed falls short according to his law. But there is yet an ark, if you will, of salvation. Intercession for the righteous. It is the priestly intervention that holds out hope for those who are there. John 17, verse 9. I am praying for them, Jesus speaking. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Note how this prayer of Jesus, though much more confident and with a perfect knowledge of the Father's will, parallels Abraham's prayer. Abraham said, if there's just 45 righteous, would you save them? If there's just 40, would you save them? Now Jesus is praying, the true significant son, the high priestly prayer, and he says, every single one that you have given to me, I pray for them that not a single one would be lost, for they are yours, he says in verse 9, verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have joy fulfilled in themselves. I, give, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You hear here the intercessory prayer of Jesus Christ on your behalf if you are a believer in this room. However, if the sound of this message hits you and you are still a friend of the world, Jesus does not pray for those, so to speak. So this is a call for you to repent. If you find yourself relating more to the values of Sodom than you do table fellowship with the Almighty, repent. Because there will come a day when God will visit with His day of reckoning and that day of visitation. And if He is welcomed, if His angels are welcomed by attempts to sodomize them, to sexually uh, exploit them in this depraved wickedness of sin, how do you think that city will be judged? If their perversion allows them to be blind to the opportunity to repent, thus they continue in their friendship and the world in sin, there remains no hope for them except for utter nothing, except utter destruction. However, if you cling to Jesus Christ, if you take refuge that He prays for you, if you trust that His blood secures your redemption, if you know that He is your high priest and there is such assurance, there is such reassurance knowing that not a single one of his sheep will be lost and you are counted among those sheep because you have repented of your sins and trusted in him, then you can take great courage. But these are the ways the lines are drawn. And it is helpful even in our day when the lines become sharper because the day is growing dark. In days like this, I beg you, I implore you, I encourage you to turn to passages of Scripture like those we have read today and stand with Christ. Stand with your high priest who intercedes on your behalf. Jesus Christ and his priestly intercession as the fulfillment of Abraham's role, the significant son, this is how the righteous escape. This is how they escape the judgments of God when our mediator, 
our priest, our advocate, our Messiah, the significant son, Jesus, the seed of the woman, in his Satan head-crushing work on Calvary, the appointed one prays on our behalf. Let us close thanking him this day. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have purchased our soul's salvation at the cost of your son's blood. Jesus, we look to you as our high priest and our Messiah, the one who prays so that we might not be caught in the destruction of the fire and brimstone. Lord, while there yet remains today, and we live in an era to some degree parallel to Abraham's day, I pray that you would give us the heart of truth, that we might not be friends with the world, reject, reject, that we would reject the allure of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the valley, as it were, and that we would embrace ever more so friendship with the Lord, that we would teach our children in the next generation that the righteousness and justice of God and hope in His covenant are the means of security, assurance, eternal life, and salvation, and that we would announce to those who yet abide in this wicked city that the only hope of salvation is found in the intercession of Jesus Christ, and that we would be convicted to be that righteous minority, though there be few of us that stand alongside. Nevertheless, that we would be encouraged that sometimes, Lord, in your grace and your mercy, you spare the nation on account of those who without compromise stand upon your covenants. May all these things encourage us in our day and may our numbers grow by the power of the Holy Spirit using the proclamation of his church to reach the lost for your namesake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.